please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In the early 20th century, when instant cake mixes were first introduced, all the product required was for the preparer to add water and then bake. All the rest of the ingredients, including powdered eggs, were included in the package. Consumers were not impressed. Though reviewers noted that the mixes made fine cakes, the general consumer remained skeptical. How could something so simple replace treasured recipes handed on for generations? It wasn't until the late 1940s, just after World War II, with the boom of new households precipitated by returning soldiers marrying their sweethearts, that the product finally took off. But this time it was different. Manufacturers removed the powdered eggs and required consumers to add both eggs and oil to the recipe. And this time, it was an instant hit. Why the changes? Wouldn't it have made sense to keep the product as easy to prepare as possible? The answer was surprising. Research indicated that consumers thought that the original product was too easy to use. They doubted that anything that only required the addition of water could compare with those beloved made-from-scratch recipes handed down through families. Sometimes things can be too simple. In the verses from John we heard read earlier, Jesus pushes back against the perceived ease with which the disciples and others think that he will be able to effect change in Jerusalem. Having entered the city in a wave of euphoria, the disciples think the crowds are ready to rise up and anoint Jesus as the new ruler of the nation. Jesus knows better. John tells us that it's just after the triumphal entry that a group of folks from Greece come searching for Jesus. Now, it's quite likely that these folks were devout Jews from Greece and that they had most likely come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They must have heard about or witnessed the crowds welcoming Jesus and had now come to see for themselves what the fuss was all about, about this itinerant rabbi. So they approach Philip and ask to see Jesus. And Philip takes them to see Andrew, and together they go off to find Jesus. There's every indication that Jesus <clears throat> that Jesus is surrounded by crowds with throngs of people vying for his attention after the parade into the city. Just a few verses earlier, John notes that one of the Pharisees has quipped, it's as if the whole world has gone after him. These folks from Greece coming to see Jesus serve an important point in the narrative of John's telling of Jesus' story. For most of the gospel, Jesus has focused on the Jewish population of Palestine. He's taught and healed among them, and they have revered him for it. Gentiles in the region have shown interest, 
but it's been clear that Jesus' ministry has been to his own people. Now John makes clear that the triumphal entry into Jerusalem has signaled the expansion of Jesus' ministry and the growing increase of his reputation. People from all over the world are hearing about this charismatic young teacher who challenges the powers that be and preaches a way of life that brings richer and fuller life to the whole world. John knows, Jesus knows, that the attention of these foreigners will only further inflame the anxiety and the anger of the religious and political officials. They already suspect that Jesus is planning to lead a rebellion against Rome, but the presence of followers from other parts of the world will confirm the seriousness of the threat that Jesus poses to them. Anyone who can bring together the disparate peoples ruled by Rome is a danger to the status quo. That's why Jesus immediately shifts to speaking about his impending death. The disciples want to revel in the glory of an ever-widening and diversifying group of supporters and while this is clearly the inevitable result of Jesus' ministry, there is a price to be paid for it. Jesus does draw people together from diverse cultures and backgrounds, <clears throat> uniting them in a vision of a world renewed and made whole by the love of God poured out through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. But it's that very coming together that will ensure Jesus' fate. There's no way to escape it not and remain faithful to God and to the mission God has given. The time has come, Jesus says. This is the moment when the real glory of God will be revealed. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just one grain. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it can and will produce more grain. These are cryptic words, but in them is the point Jesus has been trying to make for some time to the disciples. The adulation of others, the attention of the crowds and their cheering support does little to change the course of the world. That kind of attention can be addictive, but it's also toxic, both to the reign of God and to the object of that attention. That's why Jesus pushes back and speaks pointedly about his impending death. It isn't as if Jesus revels in the idea of death. He's honestly terrified of it, as we see in these verses. There's a very real desire inside of him to plead with God to save him from the fate that he knows awaits him. But there is a deeper and stronger part of him that knows there is no way to escape the suffering of death and remain faithful to the way and will of God. That's what keeps him going and what gives him the strength to face what lies ahead. Jesus is careful, though, to warn the disciples against being impressed or obsessed with the attention and adulation of the crowds. If they want to be true disciples, they must be willing to follow the path of suffering. The transformation they seek cannot happened through ease and comfort. It can only be found by embracing the struggle, 
by being willing to endure the rejection and the isolation and the loneliness that will come from following the way of Jesus. Future generations will struggle with those same questions. Future disciples will struggle with seeking the acceptance and support of the powers that be around them. The author of Hebrews reminds them and all of us that Jesus' triumph over the powers of evil and death is because of his faithfulness, his willingness to do the most difficult thing imaginable by embracing the way of suffering. The fruit of that faithfulness is that we can live in hope on this side of the empty tomb, a sure and unshakable hope that death cannot and will not have the final say. In Christ, God has triumphed and earned the final word, and that word is life. We're not unlike those first disciples and all the rest who've gone before us in this journey of faith. Like them, we yearn to avoid suffering. It's a natural human desire, for we were created in the image of one who is being itself. Every part of our person screams, live, and yet Jesus asks us to embrace death as a way to find the only kind of life that can and will last. Struggle is real and it's transformative for us and for the world itself. If we can show the world a different way to live, one that can bring life not just to self but to the world as a whole, we can bring liberation and hope to those for whom suffering is the only reality they have ever known, and we can bring healing to the planet itself. That's ultimately the truth that Jeremiah proclaims when he speaks of the new covenant God will create with humanity. To a people whose world is collapsing all around them, the prophet speaks of a God who is faithful, who is at work, and one who will never forsake them. The way of God can and will bring life. God will write this truth deeply within our very hearts, the very hearts of the people, and nothing can or ever will destroy it. This past year has demanded so much of us. We have been forced to change the way we live and work and communicate with each other. Anxiety and frustration, grief and confusion have been our constant companions we have taken so much for granted. Rarely did we ever stop to think about the beauty of the moment or the wonder of a simple touch. And yet the pandemic has forced all of us to come to terms with the ways in which we took so much for granted before and how much those things meant even if we never realized it. The pandemic has also made tremendous demands of us. Demands that we sacrifice our own comfort for the sake of others. It's true, the majority of people who get sick will recover quickly and completely. But the most vulnerable among us, those who are elderly and have complicating underlying health conditions, those are the folks most at risk of serious infection and death. And it's for their sake and for the sake of our healthcare providers and our health system as a whole that we have been asked to sacrifice our comfort by wearing masks, remaining physically distanced from one another, 
in refraining from gathering in large groups or traveling unnecessarily. So on the surface, these are inconveniences, but in truth, they're one simple way we can embrace the way of suffering for the greater good. Even as vaccines become more readily available and more people are inoculated, emerging variants continue to pose a significant threat to the most vulnerable among us. To walk in the way of Jesus means we must be willing to embrace the inconvenience of these mitigation efforts until everyone is safe. Theologian David Lose has written, the point of faith in Jesus isn't just faith or comfort or satisfying spiritual desires. But the point of following Jesus is that we might be drawn more deeply into the kingdom of God through our love for service to and sacrifice on behalf of those around us. The news this past week of the brutal murder of eight people in Atlanta, six of them Asian women, is a reminder of the challenges we face. A deeply disturbed young man blamed these women for struggles in his own life. Instead of facing his own inner turmoil, this young man chose to place the blame on others and in doing so found it all too easy to dehumanize them. This is the reality of racism and its toxic influence in our lives. It becomes far too easy to blame others for the reality of our own challenges and in doing so to see them as expendable. Jesus demands that we look at ourselves and face the struggles within us in order to bring healing to us and to others. There's a great story from the Zen tradition. A distinguished person came to visit Nanin, the great Zen master, one day, seeking the meaning of life. Nanin invited the man to tea, and as they were sitting, the man began to tell the spiritual teacher about his life and his exploits and his successes, and the revered teacher listened carefully and placed a cup in front of the man. And as the man prattled on and on, Nanin began to fill the cup with tea. But when the cup was full, the great teacher continued to pour. And as the hot tea spread toward him, the man finally stopped speaking and interjected, wait, the cup is overflowing, there's no more room. Nanin stopped pouring, smiled, and looked at the man and replied, like this cup, you were overflowing with your own opinions and achievements. How can I teach you anything unless you are willing to empty your cup? Jesus invites us to empty our cup for the sake of others. For in doing so, not only will we give life to others, but we will find the very life that we ourselves seek. Amen.